Welcome to a brand new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. We are joined by two special guests, Jiyun and Cole, to talk with us about component libraries, pattern libraries, whatever you want to call it, sharing code within your teams or within your companies. Jiyun and Cole, can you give a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Jiyun Lim, and I am a senior UR engineer for VMware. And currently, I'm working on an open source library called Clarity, which is our um, component library uh, that's built on top of Angular. And for favorite happy hour drink, I would have to go with a glass of red wine. Hi, my name is Cole Turner. I'm a senior UI engineer at Netflix. And my favorite happy hour beverage is Mezcal. All right. So let's also go around the table and give introduction of today's panelists. Jem, you want to start it off? Jem Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. I'm Ryan Aklam. I'm a software engineer at Netflix. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at, you guessed it, Netflix. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, in each episode of the Front End Happier podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. Now, what did we decide today's keyword is? Shared. Shared. All right. So from now on, if the word shared, sharing, anything along those lines is shared, we will all take a drink. <laughs> what if we mentioned someone whose name is Sharon? That I don't think counts. Doesn't count? That okay. doesn't count. Just, yeah. just throwing that I mean, out there. Because I know that, that name will come up lots in this episode. Totally. Yes. <laughs> all right. I do want to start off. You know, I even kind of hinted at it at the start is what is a component library? What's a pattern library? Do we Are they the same? How do we define what that is? For me, the my my personal favorite analogy for component library is Lego blocks. So think of distinct setup tools or um, very atomic set of uh, building blocks for you, your UI that you can then compose to build something more complex and interesting. I love that you called Lego blocks because I've heard a few companies that's the project title of their pattern libraries is Lego. Oh, is so that, right? that actually works really well. And it's, it's always made a lot of sense to me as well is that the piece is there, it works on its own, but it also works within to build something bigger. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the fun part of it is for me, like I've noticed a difference um, even in how our designers work. So instead of thinking about what our buttons are going to look like, what our margins and paddings are going to look like, they're now um, able to focus on more complex problems, right? So what do our workflows look like? And what do the integrations of these um, components look like? So yeah, absolutely. You could say a, a component library is a pattern library, but a pattern library is not necessarily a component library. So a component library, we'd say, in my mind, I picture Legos is correct, or I picture the same thing. Uh, something like you have a button, it's a button component, no one needs to know how to reinvent the wheel 60 times. So you have one button as part of your component library. But a pattern library I see is more of like, we have a standard gray that we're going to use because gray is an amorphous color. It's mm -hmm. not specific. So we're going to use that that as a pattern library and maybe our less or SAS or whatever. And that's like a, the pattern we use to be consistent across. So they're kind of 
the same thing, but one's like a subset of the other one. Yeah. And if we think about it at the level of like color schemes and layouts and um, things of that nature. So definitely. Yeah. And I don't even, that might even be touching in the line of like a style guide too, is like the type of thing or a brand, brand guide. I think style guide and brand guide are similar, but they probably have their nuances as well that, you know, like I think of a brand guide as like, you'll have your logo and how it can be placed uh, even for external people. If like it was you know, if someone is using the Netflix logo, it's like there's a brand guide on how to use it and where not to use it. You, you know, just details like that too. And even considering things like font sizes where it might vary from title to paragraph. Yeah. yeah and I think that would be, I would summarize that probably less component, right? I think that would be more in the style guide. So, all right, good. I think it's always good to like baseline, what are we talking about? So we're talking more about the component and shared code. Cheers. 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 So why a component library? What is the benefits to using a component library? Why would we want to do that? I think it's a very obvious statement to say that you want your end users to have a consistent experience across products, right? And so for us, we have had previous iterations or attempts to try to do that without a component library. So we had a centralized design team and what we were given was then um, specs with pixel values, hex codes, and... Nice uh, red lines. Yeah, and we were given them and said, um, implement these and we will make sure that all of our products then look the same. And I think um, that could work. Um, very time consuming, a lot of um, duplication of code and engineering effort and a lot of room for mistakes as well. And so... Um, from that uh, came the initiative that became to be our component library. And when we handed them code snippets to use, you know, all the other product teams, all they had to do was include them. And of course, yeah, you tweak them, the content part of it or what have you. But um, it brought forth a lot of engineering um, efficiency, I would mm -hmm. say. So, yeah. Yeah, I think of that consistency. I love that. And I also think of the, even just the fact that if you have a bug somewhere, it's like you fix it in one place and it just updates everywhere. That to me is like one of the best benefits right there is as an engineer, if I fix something, I want to make sure that I'm fixing it everywhere. And if it is just one component that's really truly used everywhere, that can be really beneficial. I think, um, I guess, how talk about how that actually proliferates throughout a code base, right? So you get a component library, you share it with everyone um, and what Cheers. a team Cheers. would do. Cheers. And, you know, how do you ensure that the integrity of your component maintains the same or the teams that consume them don't just make their own fork of it and then start um, making changes and then it breaks the whole um, integrity of the whole library, right? Because you have all these one-offs now all over the place. I think that this is something maybe we'll talk more as we continue in this conversation, but what we did early on that I think was really helpful was that we interviewed and talked to a lot of engineers as we were building it. Um, I think sometimes we try to solve a problem that doesn't exist and it could be nicely packaged and it could be the most beautiful piece of code you've ever written. But if no one uses it, if, that, if it doesn't solve any problems, then that doesn't really work out very well. And so for us, I think in the early days, at least, not a lot of forking was done um, just because we were meeting the needs of the engineering team. But now, though, we do have 
a set of needs that have grown and have outpaced the the efforts of our small engineering team building um, working on the library. So we do have a one, at least that I know of, uh, internal library that's built on top of it. So extensions, I think, is how we um, kind of call it. And the car makers Porsche also actually use Clarity, so they have actually. Um, open sourced uh, an additional set of components that they, they've built on top of Clarity as well. So oh, that's kind of cool too. So as you're getting these custom, uh, they're taking the baseline and then adding this customized piece to it as well. Yeah. That's really cool. I think also calling out another benefit, you mentioned the consistency, but I also think of the collaboration between engineering and design, the fact that they're both being able to leverage this one element or these pieces that they can now build with, which is pretty, probably pretty powerful. Yeah, definitely. We don't implement anything out of the vacuum. So we do have a uh, UX design lead on our component library as well. But then he will work with um, the product designers who are actually building for specific use cases and looking at how we would be leveraging and using these um, certain components. And so we kind of look at what's the level of kind of scaling that we want to do, right? So for example, if we're building tree nodes, um, like a tree view, we have to consider, is it going to scale for um, thousands of virtual machines loading on the UI? So performance is a big thing, but also the API of the component, right? One huge thing that we focus on a lot is developer experience. And so because our consumers for, for, for my team is other engineers. And so how do we make a simple use case, make it um, not be such a highly configurable component code that would require, you know, dozens of configuration. We don't want that to be the case, but also be extensible enough that you can then um, be able to support the complex use cases as well. So, yeah. That's a really tricky balance to be over configuration versus ease of use. Absolutely. Uh, that's one area in which we don't always agree on and there's a lot of ongoing discussion happening all the time. Yeah, another benefit is just ease of use. I know uh, Bitbucket, when Stacey has talked about it before, is they have their component library and to use like say a button or an input, it's just require this or import this and like it's just that easy and then it's just there. You don't have to worry about the styling or if it's tested or if it's using some weird pattern because it's just there. It's kind of like NPM. Just like, oh, I need a button that does, I don't know, AES-256 hashing. I'll just import a library that does that for me. Same principle. So I'm not stuck doing the same thing over and over again and repeating what someone else has solved many, many times over. That's a great way to think about a component library is like, why are you rethinking that? That's actually so much cognitive load. Especially tricky things like, I think one time I had to build an interactive graph with a slider, which this is a few years ago. But if you've ever built one of those, there's a ton of edge cases. There's a lot of things to consider, like boundaries and things like that. I wish someone had built a component already that I can just import it, put my data in there, and it works. It's stuff like that. I, I think people trivialize component power in libraries when it's like really simple, simple things like how to do a light box or something like that. But when you get the really complex things like interactive graphs, then a component library is really, really useful because... Someone else who's much smarter than you has already solved this problem. And probably son solved it across multiple viewports too, right? Like if, if think of the browser is like they're having to solve it for mobile. It's being tested on mobile. Like I love that you also said tested. is Hey, there's probably also unit tests or uh, integration tests that are written for that. I don't have to do that. It's already taken care of for me. And that's a huge win. And just to be able to add to that, to be able to develop your component library in isolation so that you're not depending on a server or a particular view is pretty good for ergonomics because you can just tweak those individual settings or configurations 
and you can stage that and when you're ready you can pull it into your flow all right we've kind of touched on like some of the benefits i think we've outlined some good reasons why you'd want to do this i know it's hard it's not an easy problem is like what are some of the challenges of creating and maintaining a pattern library i think there's there's many yeah first thing that comes to my mind is versioning it's not something we had thought about very early on and we were going against the kind of rc versions of angular which at that time was on the cost of being 2.0. Now we're up to 7, 8 um, uh, version, but it was fun, but also kind of taxing to upgrade version of Angular. And all of a sudden, half of your code uh, doesn't work anymore. But we didn't want that same kind of experience to be true for consumers of Clarity, for example. And so we really had to bite our tongues and and say, oh, yeah, we are going to support some of these things and make it be backward compatible. And um, there were tech debts and different kinds of things that we hadn't thought about so much. And so now um, when we look at our roadmap and, and look at the MVP, for example, of a component, we also think about what is the, I think an analogy I've heard before is what is the cupcake version of your component and what is the wedding cake version? And so in being able to release the future future versions, are you going to break the existing API? So we're very, very conscious of that um, right now, but certainly wasn't the case three years ago, for example. One thing I really want to know is how do you keep your documentation up to date? So that's always the hardest thing for any type of shared library that I've ever tried to have or maintain. It's just that documentation. The second you break that trust in the documentation, people stop reading it and relying on it. So how do you keep it up to date? Yeah, um, our doc documentation is versioned as well. So we'll you'll be able to kind of switch uh, between different versions of the component to see, be able to see what is the correct markup, uh, the inputs and outputs for the version that you're particularly working with. But in terms of maintaining it, when we have code update, we actually, as part of our process, then always review our documentation. I mean, we're not perfect, so we might have missed it, for example, and, and be able to um, patch that in a future um, website update. But it always goes hand in hand for us, so we uh, update them in parallel. For me, a difficult thing that I always think about is where to start. I think that's hard. It's like You're talking like we've already got down to the path of, I hadn't even really thought about all the versioning, and yes, the breaking changes. Great. At least you're far ahead at that point. I also think about it as like just starting. I, I think that is so difficult is getting buy-in from everyone too, because I think that's super important is why is this beneficial? How are design and engineering going to benefit from that? And I think that is honestly a challenge in itself is just saying like, this is useful and let's do this is getting the buy-in, but then where do you even start too? Because I think that's a challenge there is that oftentimes you feel like you have to create this entire library that solves everything versus start small, find a button and make a component that's shared. Cheers. 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 So versioning, can I sum up what you said, Ryan, as politics? Politics is definitely what I was getting at, yeah. That what it, Where I've seen uh, pattern libraries and component libraries fall apart, it's largely politics. It's almost always politics. It's uh, one engineer who didn't buy in originally, like say they hired them later, and they say, oh, this button doesn't have all of the API. It doesn't have my use case, so I'm just going to write my own. And then you get three or four of those people. Then you have three or four buttons. And then the whole thing is lost. Or design disagrees. Someone new starts and they say, we don't agree with this. Um, 
let's just roll our own. And then like, it's, it's easy to fragment because at the core engineers want to build stuff and a component library in theory enables you to build faster if you use it correctly. But like, it's always like, it doesn't quite fit my use case. So I'm just going to roll my own because that's what we like to do. And that's where it always falls down. And I'd like to hear more about that. Cause I, I've, I've seen many talks on component libraries or pattern libraries, but no one ever says like, actually here's how you get by and here's how you maintain it over time because everybody can create a one-off but like getting an entire company to buy in is really really challenging that's a challenge you build this beautiful interactive library that people can go check out but if they're not using it and they're not integrating it well then the mission has failed at that point um so yeah what are some solutions or ways that we can integrate a pattern library what do i have to do yeah what does everyone think uh well when i was at paypal we had several repositories for different component libraries, even though it was all sort of for the same monolithic application. And one of the challenges we faced was, how do we keep this version of this component in compatibility with this version of that component? And as we bumped up versions, we found ourselves unable to maintain backwards compatibility. So we had just this kind of entanglement of different versions. I think that's one of the biggest challenges is keeping it in sync. Yeah, um, kind of piggybacking off of that, one decision that we've made consciously recently is to sync up our versioning with the Angular versioning cycle. So then that makes it very easier, both cognitively, but technically as well, to at least uh, remove those kind of um, mental map exercise of, is this version of Angular going to work this with this version of uh, the component library and so forth? Because we haven't had as much of an issue with having multiple component libraries uh, across the company, I couldn't speak to that so much, but yeah, I could imagine that being a really challenging thing. It was definitely an issue when you consider cross-team and like one team might use this component, another team might use this component. And if one team has their needs, how do you balance that ownership model of like who is the ultimate decision maker? I think at that day too, is like there's a politics piece there too, right? Is it comes down to communication and having those conversations like June mentioned early on is having those conversations of what's the need or like, what do you need for this? And what do I need? And what does my team need? And, and thinking about that strategically of how do we solve the problem together? Or even Jem, you'd mentioned someone comes in and needs to change the use case for them. So they just reinvent the wheel. And it's like a conversation could have happened is like, hey, you're using it for this. Would it make sense to extend it to also do this? And how can we do that? I think those conversations really need to happen is we need pause and just think a little more strategically at that point. Yeah. And getting... I think one of the good places to start is getting the designers to buy in in the beginning and just saying like, here's this component library. These are all things available using something like, let's say React Storybook. I, I'm sure something exists the same for Angular. And yeah. just like showing them like, oh, you can mock out something really quickly. And if they start producing mocks that aren't using your component library, just say like, hey, it's much easier, much faster for us to iterate on this. Uh, that's usually where it starts is they create a button that looks wildly different or has different actions. I'm just using button as a base example. No, it's always button. It's always button. <laughs> always. I mean, the button's always the first point. I think because it's the easiest one where you're like, why do we have 10 of these? Yeah. It does the same thing. And just, I, it's really hard because you have to think, uh, like you said, strategically about the API. It's like, do we need a second type of button or should we just refactor to make uh, this component more accessible and broaden the API so you can build on top of that. Mm -hmm. And that takes work. Yeah. And it's so much easier just to write your own component at that point rather than I need to go in, I need to see what you wrote, and then I need to like change it, I need to understand all of this. That's a lot of work and most engineers don't want to do that. They want to 
say like, I'll just build another one because and just say design, design did it. And then it just trickles out. And before you know it, you've got 50 buttons. Yeah. One thing that we have as part of our design systems, a component library to us is a subset of our design system. So we have templates for a design software called Sketch. And so uh, what we have are basic little components in, in the Sketch software and so when they make mocks, actually, it looks exactly like the way the implemented version is going to look like. And so that's given um, our designers a lot of freedom and be able to communicate very well with it, with our engineering team. Like, this is what the mock should look like. And um, it's not like one of those Pinterest fails where you see the what it should look like and, <laughs> and the actual um, reality looks totally, completely different. Uh, we try to minimize that, right? by be having um, close collaboration like that. But um, to your point, Jem, I think it's very important to um, collaborate well with our product designers. We actually have had uh, many of our product designers contribute back to the um, library, component library. So they will do the design based on kind of the use cases and needs that they've had, and they will actually um, huddle then other um, products and say, hey, have you guys had any filtering um, use cases and needs for a data grid, for example. Can you show me what your UI looks like? Uh, what kinds of filtering are you doing? And, and be able to come up with something that's going to work well for his or her um, product, but also for maybe some of the other products. That's awesome. So you've almost like built evangelists. Everyone's kind of bought in, they're using it, and they're seeing the value. And so once you get to that point, it actually makes things a lot easier. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really cool. Because yeah, I think that's the pipe dream or like the hope that it's like once you get everyone bought in and using it, it's a living, breathing thing. And that's that's super important and powerful as well. I'd be interested to what is everyone's thoughts? Like I've heard this one is maybe a challenge or a, like almost a reason not to have component libraries is that it stifles innovation. True or false and why? I disagree. I think your any process is what's going to challenge innovation. You can collaborate with designers and uh, using a program like Sketch is nice because you can even render React components to Sketch and designers can work with those. So I think it's mostly just a matter of are the right processes in place and are developers and designers uh, given the freedom to collaborate together? I, I think if it stifles innovation, you're probably trying to answer the wrong problem, right? I think the innovation you should be doing is on the product and your flows and making the user's experience better versus just making a better button, a better input, a better anything that you would find in a component library. Yeah, I would add to that in the sense too is that, you know, these are things that we feel that we shouldn't be reinventing the wheel often, so not there's no need for innovation, but at the same time, I mean, seriously, if you have to re-innovate on it, that's fine. It's like you've got this one button that is hopefully used everywhere. And if you're like, we're going to reinvent that every other week, well, guess what? It's easier to now update that button and consistently across your code base, across your product, that much easier. It's not this tax that is now like, hey, we're, we want to change that button. I love that we're picking on the button, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, I want to change that. And it's going to require a lot more work. But once you get that baseline there, I think that's huge. Like, even if you were like, hey, we found a better way to do it. Well, okay, fine. You do that and apply it and it applies everywhere. So I, I think to me, I don't feel like it prevents you from innovating on those components. It just allows a lot more consistency and ability to come to innovate faster. Yeah. Um, and just to go a little bit further with the button, um, even while looking at buttons, we have primary action buttons 
secondary buttons, uh, buttons for a compact view, maybe a link button versus a solid button. And so I think that um, there are different kind of maybe use cases and how you would use them and even placement of button, right? Does it make sense to when you're reading a panel or of some sort, do you want to do an F pattern? I don't know if you guys have, are familiar with that or a Z pattern, depending on how uh, the user is expected to kind of read through the content and browse and interact with it. So yeah, definitely. But if you are focusing on um, how do we make a button be uh, so innovative, I, I guess you could get creative with it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm open to innovation. I mean, even it, like it could be like, bigger margins or like changing the font size or colors like you could you can change things i yes. don't know if that's like super innovative but it's changing it so so to be contrary as i am want to do on this podcast uh, do you just like do you just trying to do that right now i like to start up without brian holt here you know <laughs> someone's gonna true. disagree uh i a component library can stifle innovation uh we're making assumption about company size so like you're at vmware a big company we're at netflix a big company if you're a 20 person startup Going back and refactoring all of your code to use a shared component library is a ton of work that you may not have the resources for. Uh, even now, if we were to like start over with a new shared component library, we're talking, I don't know, hundreds, but like it would take many, many, many engineering hours to go back and refactor all of these things. That's once we have the component library already built out. It's better if you start from the beginning, but again, if you're a 20 person company, you don't know that you're gonna grow to be a 20,000 person company or 2,000 person company. So it's easy to say in retrospect, oh yeah, component libraries are awesome and pattern libraries are great, but we have to be like pragmatic in the real world that it's not always practical. The way I thought of it is like, it helps with innovation or it doesn't hurt innovation in the long term once you th you're there, but you're talking short term that now you've got to invest a lot of time to actually build out this library or go back, refactor, do all that, and that prevents you from innovating at that time. Because I hadn't even thought about it that way, so that's I'm glad you called that out. That that means you need buy-in from the CTO and the product manager saying like, hey, all of these engineers and designers are not going to be building product. They're going to be back rebuilding our old products. And it'll look exactly the same as it was. It, it just in the future, it'll enable this. But that's like that's the story of all tech debt is you have to pay it down eventually or you can just ignore it like we do with our national debt. We just say like it's not important. <laughs> uh, but at some point, either you, you get on board and you have to pay down that debt. You say, man, that's a lot. Or you just ignore it and just keep doing what you're doing and that's a, a choice every company will have to make for themselves yeah i love this like if you start early and you can start from scratch that's a great time to do it it's i mean it's like with anything i think of that for like accessibility or trying to do better testing on your code base any of those things if you can start fresh and start from the baseline there that's so much easier than trying to like go back and fix things i think uh, component or style guides in particular can be very limiting when it comes to different experiences. So if you have a mobile app and a website, for example, and you try to, to pigeonhole every design choice through one style guide, it, you're not really, you know, meeting, meeting the particular experience or you're not doing that one view justice. Like one, one decision for one platform might be good, but that might be terrible for the web or mobile. Absolutely agreed. Um, when we, one of the things that we are kind of currently in the pipeline is improving, for example, the footer that goes into a data grid, so a data table. When the screen real estate is limited on a mobile, and it, it, it could be a tablet, it doesn't have to be a phone, um, but then what? how can we give them an equivalent 
experience without having an equivalent look or even equivalent interaction, right? So kind of having to think about that and, and being able to incorporate that into uh, your products, I think is very important. So I've got a, a hypothetical, but it would be a real world scenario. I'm curious how everybody handle it. So let's say you had a data table is a great example. That's a complex component that doesn't need to be rebuilt. It's, many, it's many hard times. to do. It's a pain in the butt. Yeah. The yeah. One. So that's where I actually want someone to create this for me. I do not want to do it again. Absolutely. But let's say uh, I fire up uh, mobile Safari version nine. The data table doesn't work for me. So I say, okay, I I respect the component library. I'm not going to go through and re, re I'm not going to build my own because like that, that's too much work. But I build another component on top of that that just like fixes the bug. But at that point, they file a bug when does that bug get fixed? And then at that point, do they know to go back, refactor their code to take out their, and like, you know, that's that's one example, but over time that builds up, that builds up, that builds up. And then you have like, yeah, we have a data table component, but we have 30 different components that wrap that and do their own thing. And then when we make an API change, it breaks. And I don't know, like we have to think like longer term, not just the immediate problem. How does, how would everybody handle that sort of thing? I mean, that's that's a great question. I honestly think that that is true because you're like, yeah, at one point it might be it might be safe to just kind of build on top of it, uh, especially like for at Netflix, we do a ton of A-B testing. And so that to me is a good example where you're testing variations. It's not even something that's going to be in the product forever. It might be, but you might just be building on top of this product piece that's like lived and breathed out there, but you want to tweak it because you're testing something. And to me that should be okay at that point in time into A-B test, I think. Like that's where I'm like, yeah, okay. But at some point, whatever was the winner or updates, how do you bring that back? Like how do you add that back onto that library? And I think it goes back to conversations. I think we as engineers are so quick to code. I mean, I'm serious. We often are like, ah, I can just solve that in code. But like taking that pause and saying like, hey, where else is this component being used? How do I best add this in? How do I extend this component so that it works for all the use cases? And that might not be it. It might require creating an entire new component. But I think just taking those conversations, I think, is so important. Uh, it's not an answer to like solve it. But I, I think that that, to me, is one way to really help you come to a better answer. Yeah, I think part of being an open source library um, is that we are very happy to accept contributions. So for example, if there is a bug or an additional use case that is going to need some additional um, fixes, right? We say, why not fix it for the whole component library? So we have had both internal and ex external um, contributors do that, and that's been kind of exciting as well. But I think that's also where the support strategy matters too. How do we um, backport some of the bug fixes and how do we um, scope out what is in the scope of doing that or not. But yeah, that's a that's a challenging question to which I don't think there's like a one-liner answer to. It's a balance. Uh, it's funny that we're talking about buttons because that was my first A-B experiment at Netflix. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was, in our signup flow, there are 31 instances of the same button and we needed to experiment on that. So do I go to every 31 instance and update 10 different properties or do I abstract that into a button? And we found that that trade-off is, do you cut corners at the beginning or do you come back later and update it? There's really no definitive answer, but when it comes to the ergonomics or developer experience, you wanna think long-term 
in hindsight, how would you approach it now? Hmm, You've already done it. It's been done. What would you do differently? Oh, I would have abstracted the button. Like, <laughs> as as we talked about, layer, add your own extensibility on top of it rather than trying to pigeonhole it into every use case. I guess the answer is discipline. Like, that that's the only, there is no short and fast library or magic solution that'll solve this problem. It's just discipline. And it's one of those reminders that engineering is really hard. It's not just throwing stuff on a page and like, oh, it works now. It's these long-term things that pay off in the very, very long run. And the lessons that you've learned over time, that's all it is. Like engineering is not easy. It's gotten simpler to start, but like the, the core discipline is just like going back and applying fixes, knowing when to abstract, when, knowing when to uh, submit a fix. Yeah, that's just experience and discipline. So I'm also interested, it's kind of come up a little bit about the collaboration between design and engineering. I'm interested to know is like as engineers, how can we be collaborating better with designers, like thinking from the pattern library, the component library, how do we how do we work together really well to make it a f- efficient and actually work? I think one thing that I was fortunate enough to experience uh, recently is to actually sit in on a usability testing session. I think it's good to know the reasons why uh, when it comes to design of things. And so it's not... I think sometimes um, people have the misconception of design is all about aesthetics and maybe um, your opinion is as good as mine kind of. um, um, And I think it's gotten better. But um, so I think it's good to have an informed mind when it comes to why a designer might have uh, designed something a certain way. But then it goes the other way where there might be technical constraints. Do you want... Uh, this kind of experience that's going to take you uh, maybe a week to build or two months. Can you afford to, for example, wait two months for this other type of experience? Or um, there might be um, accessibility concerns. So is this going to be, is this content going to be interactable for someone who's using a switch device or a screen reader? Um, Things that maybe you don't necessarily think about uh, in the initial um, design, but we should, we always should. So, yeah. One thing I would add for working and collaborating a little more with design as an engineer, I think it's it's good to question and push back. Thinking back to sometimes you get a spec that's handed to you. And if there's something that you've already created, but it's a little bit different, I mean, let's pick on the button. The button comes to you and it's <laughs> the red is just a little bit different or that gray is just a little bit off or that font size is just a little bit different. I think a lot of it as an engineer, I think you should be bringing that up and raising that with the designer. Was that intended? Did you mean for that to happen? Should I change the gray? Should I change the size of this button? And I think oftentimes what I found in my experience is the designer is like, oh no, I didn't even realize we already had that. Or yeah, use what's there because I'm not trying to change it. I'm not, there's no reason for this. It was just in the design file. It didn't really get used again yeah absolutely and i've had very similar experiences as used yeah so that i think that's a good responsibility as engineers we can it's okay to ask questions and push back on that and say did you mean for this so before we go into picks i'm interested i always like to say like let's leave our listeners with like one piece of advice and i think about one of the hardest things that we've covered is how do you start a library how do you get this going in your company so the piece of advice would be is like if we could leave one piece of advice how do i start a component library create a button component (laughs) (laughs) hey i mean that's a great start start small which apparently we've addressed that the button is a hard problem yeah i was also going to say um start small uh, be incremental and be friendly 
um, these are the people that you're trying to serve as you are building out the library. I love that. Be friendly. That's a great piece of advice. Start those conversations early on, you know, get a feedback loop going and as we share components. Cheers. Cheers. Consider how your decision might affect the library long term and, you know, optimize optimize for the future rather than like, here's something small that I need to do right now. Like, remember, uh, I still think the hardest thing is the politics. And if you don't get buy-in from everybody, then it's not worthwhile doing. It doesn't matter how many hours and how beautiful and how creative it is. If you don't get the engineers and the product manager and the, the engineers to buy in, then it's not worthwhile. But if you convince them, like that's really powerful because you can you can just like make this highway for speed and it's just much faster, even though the cost is high today the cost next year will be much, much lower. And I think understanding of that and having a mature organization that can do that is is really powerful. Awesome. Well, in each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to share picks that we've found interesting that we want to share with our listeners. Let's go around the table. Cole, you want to give uh, your picks? I just watched Russian Doll, which I did not know if I was going to like it, but it was pretty damn good. I love those movies or shows where they go back and they revisit their decisions and they're just replaying over and over and over and she's just trying to stay alive and it was a really good show was is it like a comedy is it a drama it's a dark comedy all right like uh she can't even get downstairs for three days she just keeps falling and dying and reliving waking <laughs> up spoilers in, oh crap sorry uh. <laughs> june what are your picks you'd like to share yeah i am a very uh hands-on learner so i picked two things that i've used personally to master some concepts in um, engineering world, front-end engineering. So the first one is Learn Git Branching. Uh, it's a interactive website where you can kind of visually get a grasp of how you can exercise your Git foo. Uh, so that was very helpful for my team in particular because when you have pull requests from external contributors and after a round of kind of reviews and fixes and multiple commits, how do you then rebase and squash and make it into a nice commit? So that was very helpful for me. And so the website is learngitbranching.js.org. And the second one is flexboxfroggy. So flexboxfroggy.com is a place where you can um, kind of learn more about CSS uh, Flexbox. So and is it like a game too? Yes, it is. That's awesome. Which, you know, I'm always down. I mean, that's a great way to learn. Absolutely. Right on. Jem, what do you have for us? Uh, I've used Flexbox Froggy. It's it's very useful um, for just like understanding in your head how all of it works. Good pick. Uh, I have two picks today. My first pick is goodui.org slash blog. GoodUI is a company. I, I couldn't speak too much on how they do things or if they're a good company or not. Like, I don't do that. Actually, I do a lot, but I have no opinion this time. But the blog is really useful. They talk about generalizing UI patterns, like can they be generalized? Just the different elements that go into it. They break down some really interesting uh, websites and just see their different patterns. Uh, it's worth taking a look at. They go into A-B testing. They, they cover a lot of things that are fairly advanced, but uh, I, I generally like their strategy for trying to attack like what are common UI patterns can we share them? Like, what are our learnings? My second pick is actually my favorite show, though I've never talked about it before. My favorite show is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I've so seen, funny. <laughs> I, I've seen every episode of every season multiple times. It, that's, you know, Ryan, I think your show is like Friends. 
no it's probably the, the office, office or even like santa clarita diet i've started like re-watching over and over show. again it's so good we're all joel we're yeah all joel. joel's a good one uh but you know everybody has their go-to show that they kind of grew up with and it's always sunny's been on for like 15 years now it's the seinfeld of our generation is what it's been called just a bunch of kind of misanthropes and their adventures but i'm gonna pick the the last episode of season 13 and if you haven't seen it I don't want to spoil it, but like it's probably one of the most beautiful things in television history that I've ever seen. Like the amount of work that went into it is just insane. It's like worth looking into, and I won't spoil it because like once you see it, but it it is amazing. It's like way past. It's always sunny as a show. It's just like something entirely new, and it's like brave and bold. And you got to give it to them, man. Like they just keep keep trying some something new. But it, it's worth seeing. I won't spoil it. But if you haven't seen season thirteen yet, it, it's good. Awesome, Ryan. What do you have? Yeah, so my first pick is a show. Just it seems to be the popular thing to do today, uh, and it's the show Counterpart on Stars. Right? The premise is that there's a point in time where the world basically splits in two, and there's a, a world that's an exact mirror of our world, and then over time they kind of slowly start to diverge and things happen, um, and there's interactions between these two worlds, um, and it's, it's a really interesting show. And uh, John Funk, who plays the main character Howard on the show, just does a, an amazing job. So he plays Howard from both worlds, uh, who have two very different personalities. And he blows me away every episode. I think it's it's a really good show. And it's a, definitely one you need to sit down and pay attention to. You can't just read a book or be talking to someone while you're watching it. you got to sit down and, and pay attention. But it's definitely worth your, your investment. And my second pick is in... Chrome plugin called Elevate for Strava. Uh, so, uh, being a data nerd, I love data, and being a runner as well, um, Elevate just gives you a ton more data on top of all of your not not just your running, but any uh, activity you do on Strava. But it's able to give you really nice um, fitness and form graphs, so you can see basically if you're overtraining yourself, um, and shows you kind of cumulative graphs from distance and elevation from year over year. So if you, if you like data and you track your fitness on Strava, uh, definitely check out Elevate. Right on. All right, I'm going to follow suit with a bit of a show, which is actually a documentary on the, well, it's called Fire, but it's on the music festival Fire. Well, the music festival that didn't happen. <laughs> it's a Netflix original. I thought which... you were going to pick the Hulu one. <laughs> well, I was actually going to add that is a almost like a two pick is like you should go watch both is you've got the Netflix original, which is on fire and it has one perspective. And then you have the Hulu documentary, which has another perspective. And I think in general, the story is pretty out there. And so you should watch it either one of them or both because I think you get even more insights into it. But yeah, it's it's pretty interesting to watch so i'm just gonna throw that out there as something that you should go watch and then since we're talking about style guides pattern libraries i wanted to throw out it's it's a bit of an older book but brad frost wrote a book called atomic design it's a really short read but the concept really it's really thoughtful about how to think strategically about how to not not only how to build components from an engineering standpoint, but also a design perspective and just how to think strategically about that. So it really helps build into how you might approach building your own component library. Uh, so I highly recommend checking that one out. All right, before we end the episode, I want to thank June and Cole for joining us. Uh, it was a ha pleasure having both of you on. Where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, um, Twitter is probably the best way to get a hold of me. Um, my Twitter handle is gunit. 
So just <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> um, so that's Jiyun, uh, um, J E E Y U N, and I T at the end. Love it. That's so good. You can find me on Twitter at Cole Turner. Please send me pictures of dogs. Ooh, nice. Uh, you will definitely be getting some dog pics. That's for sure. Let's also go around the table. Jem, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jem Young, and as usual, if you send Ryan bird box memes, I will send you stickers. <laughs> Even though I'm not really a fan of bird box, it is funny. It's I have funny I have too. got some good bird box memes. So. What about D bird box from It's Always Sunny? That's my favorite meme. Yes, but it's too nuanced. For <laughs> Ryan, I am bittersweet Ryan on Twitter, and I'm at Burgess D Ryan. Yes, I'm welcome to some bird box memes, good or bad. I'm happy to see them. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to Front End Happy Hour on whatever podcast catcher, whatever you want to call it, that you like listening to podcasts on. And you can follow us on Twitter at Front End HH. Any last words? Do you, do you write G unit tests? <laughs> <laughs>